that thing that we know we shouldn't love, but we do. It's the thing that's, a, maybe we keep it a secret, maybe people know it about us, but there's that thing in our hearts and in our lives that we just love. And it seems like we're in constant spiritual tug of war because it's just so prevalent in our lives. And really, it's one of those things where you're like, how do I deal with this part of my life? Because it's so big and it seems like it's almost impossible to wrestle with and to, to maybe get victory over it or maybe to overcome it. And that's really what this series kind of really is about. It's about awakening up to what God has, to waking up to the fact that God has so much more for you that he wants to do. And sometimes we're, we're not awake to that reality. Sometimes you may have been in a really deep sleep and then you just kind of wake up with a sudden jerk and you just kind of like, wow, I do not feel refreshed, but I'm awake. And it's just kind of a, uh, one of those uh, sleeps. Maybe you're in a car and somebody wakes you up and uh, you're not very happy. My son, Austin, he does not wake up well from naps. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't. How many of you, you're like that? You don't wake up well from naps. It's just better you don't take a nap. You're like, as soon as I take a nap, this will not end well for anybody around me. Like, I'll be fine. You will not be fine unless I wake up and there is food. If you feed me after a nap, then it's okay. So as soon as Austin gets up, I quick grab something. Even this morning, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting before God, and I'm like, all right, God, you know, I want to have this message. And he gets up, I'm like, oh, the devil has arrived. I mean, my son has arrived. <laughs> Quickly feed the beast. And he wants cereal. He just loves cereal. If there's no milk, it's just like, do we have soy milk? No, we don't have any silk, you know. Do we have almond milk? And it's kind of incredible that today we can milk almonds. I mean, it's just technology today, you know. Know, the things we can do, and that uh, we didn't have that. If you don't have milk for my son, it's just, it doesn't go well. He wants to wake up. He wants to eat. But we're asking ourselves, do we love something that we shouldn't? There is a battle that is going on, and this battle is not around us. This battle is going on inside of us, and it's a war for our heart. It's a war for our desire. It's a war for our affection, our allegiance. And this war is something that it's easy to talk about the struggle out there. But I find in my life, it's not the struggle out there that gets me down as much as the struggle that goes on in here that can destroy me. We see it all the time. People are, are, are totally, um, their life is totally transformed. Why? Not because of the struggle out there, but because of the inward struggle. I think about one of the, arguably the, the golf stars that really made golf awesome was Tiger Woods and who, who had such a meteoric rise but then just kind of blew up. And it wasn't because of the battle out there. It was the internal battle, wasn't it? And so many times we can look at not just in sports, but we can look at people that they struggle and the struggle is inside. And what feeds this struggle is a simple but yet dangerous question that we tie everything to. And this is the question and fill it in in your own mind. If I just had blank, then I would be happy. That's how the battle starts, isn't it? If I just had that car, then I'd be happy. If I just had that house, then I'd be happy. If I just had that spouse, then I'd be happy. If I just had that job, I would be happy. 
If I just had this many zeros in my bank account, then I'd be happy. Some of you are like, I would take a couple zeros. It doesn't even have to be many. I just, just one more zero, you know, because right now I just had the one zero and I need a few more zeros. It's just that I only got one zero. And, uh, you know, there's something like that where you're just saying, this is the thing that I'm tying my happiness to. And this is what I love. You know, we live in a day and age where it seems like culture and everything around us is teaching us what to love. I think today there's a... So many of us, we hear about culture, we hear about what's going on, we're influenced to have different desires, and there's a writer, his name is John, and he's going to write to a church that's struggling, and in 1 John chapter number 2, we're going to dive into what he has to say to this church, and John is the apostle, he's the last living apostle. Which makes John the last living spiritual authority. He's the highest authority on planet earth at this time when he gives the writing of 1 John. There's no other apostles. Now the church was going on, the work of God was going on, but John, the last apostle who had walked with Jesus, who, who helped write the Bible, they come to him and John writes some things in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And what John is about to write is not easy scripture to write. John has had a very fatherly tone in his writing. His, his writing has been very much suggestive. His writing has been uh, even sometimes corrective. But this time we come to John. John chapter 2, and we come to verse number 15, and notice what John says. He says quite plainly, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, immediately, we could look at that word world, and we think, what do you mean? Well, I love going to Marine County, and I, and I love seeing Half Moon Bay, and I love the Grand Canyon, and I love the Yosemite, and I love the sequoias, and I love beaches and oceans. That's, that's not what John is talking about. If you love God's creation, then praise God. He created it. He wanted it for your enjoyment. What is he talking about? He's talking about a system, a way of thinking, a way of behaving. That's what John is talking about. Worldliness could be defined as this. It's whatever sin makes normal and what makes sin makes righteousness look abnormal. And so today our value system is being changed. Isn't it funny that there's a family, their name is the Kardashians. If you haven't heard of them, then God bless you. But isn't it amazing that they can define a value system for us? Isn't it incredible that they can define what is in style? Isn't it amazing that they can define what is popular, what's the cool new trend on social media? I mean, duck face. If you or I were to try to pull off duck face or to kick that thing off, it would have died because nobody should have been doing duck face. But there was a time when everybody was doing duck face, all right? I mean, we used to make fun of kids that had duck face, all right? And now it's popular. I know, don't judge. I'm a pastor and you just judge me. It's okay, all right? And uh, it's, it's amazing that they can, they can import a value system. And for some of us, we're growing up in a culture that's totally foreign to what we we really know is true it's amazing that when i grew up um i'm not that old but my family wasn't real big into television or cable so we would watch some of the older shows what i mean by i love lucy uh leave it to beaver andy griffith those were the shows that we would watch and as you watch those shows none of those shows were written necessarily by uh, a pastor or a church committee but it's interesting that in those shows we never had to worry about beaver dropping 
the F-bomb or um, Opie uh, smoking weed and getting drunk or his girlfriend pregnant. It just, you didn't worry about any of that. You never had to, had to oh no, my kids are about to watch this episode and that's a, that's a bad, you can watch anything else but this and I've got to censor that. And, and yet today's modern television, by contrast, is amazing how much they could show. It seems like every season they're pushing the envelope about what they're going to push and what they're going to show and what they're going to talk about and what political agenda or what cultural ideology. And it just seems like there's a value system that's creeping in. So what John is talking about is something that's transcendent. He's saying, hey, there's a system out there and it wars against God's system. And he's saying that system, don't love it. And it's amazing how we can love it. It's amazing how we can fall in love with some things that God said. It's not that it's bad. It's that you're falling in love with something and it's taking first place. And he goes on to say, do not love the world nor the things in it. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. The world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Verse 16, though, is a, a, a kind of an, a stinging indictment because it seems like when it comes to the world, what makes the world so glitzy and so glamorous is verse 16 because it says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is where, really, I would say this is the triple threat right here, isn't it? If anything is going to get us to fall, if anything's going to pull our hearts away, if anything's going to get us to love what we know we shouldn't love, it's going to be these three. As you study the Bible and as you start right at the very beginning, you don't have to go too far into Genesis and you'll come to Genesis chapter three. And there's the first woman. Her name is Eve. And the Bible says that Eve is there and Satan taking the form of a serpent, which I think is really I think there's a good correlation there. This is why you just shouldn't like snakes. If you're a snake liker, there's a there's a problem. I just use the word liker. That's that's not a word, y'all. That's not a word. And you didn't catch it. You just rolled with it. You just rolled. Either my grammar is giving you a new system, and that's not good, or you're just totally, uh, education was not your thing, you know? So it's all right. But here's this first woman, and she's standing there at this tree, and then Satan comes to her, and Satan says, hey, go and take and eat this fruit, and she says, we're not allowed to, and Satan begins to put doubt in her mind, and then the Bible says that she looked, and she looked at the fruit and said, this fruit looks good, and it's going to make me wise. What is it? It's the lust of the flesh. It's the pride of life. It's the lust of the eyes, and all of a sudden, we see in that passage that she took, she ate of the forbidden fruit and then she plunged the human race into what we now have is this sinful nature and so we see that right there there was a woman who had a perfect environment I mean there was no social pressure there was no uh, uh, thing to measure up she didn't go to the PTA meetings think okay did I measure up with all the other moms and, and it wasn't something where hey am I as thin as that wife or, or do I do all the crafts that that mom does and, and am I taking care of my home and it's fall and so I've got to stink and get all these fall decorations i got to do all these 57 things out of pumpkin you know i'm using pumpkin rinds to to repurpose and this is just dumb why am i doing this i don't even i'm trying to keep people happy that i don't even like and and it's just dumb i'm gonna stop you know she didn't have that but yet she still falls for the sin and temptation we don't have to go too far in scripture we meet a man by the name of david the bible says that david was a man after god's own heart just means he loved god more than anything 
But the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter number 11 that David sent his army to war because David is a king of an entire nation. And when he sends his army to war, David, the Bible says, gets bored. And in the evening, he goes on the roof of his palace and he starts walking around the roof and he sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba bathing. The Bible says he looked at her lust of the flesh. Then the Bible says he inquired about her. And then the Bible says that he said to one of his servants, go get her for me. This is totally the pride of life. And so we see that Eve, she fell. We see that David, he fell. And some of us are thinking, exactly, this is why I fall. The only way to get rid of temptation is to give in to temptation. So I see the cake, I eat it. I go to the mall, I spend it. You know, I hear gossip, I gossip. I see people get angry, I get angry. And you just feel like there is no defense. When it comes to you and temptation, you just feel like I just give in. I can't control myself. And you're feeling hopeless and you hate it when we talk about temptation. You hate it when we talk about struggles. You hate it when we talk about addiction because you feel like there is no victory. You chalk it up. There's no W's. There's only L's when it comes to you and temptation. But yet you haven't come to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we come to Luke chapter number four, and there is another character who faces temptation. The Bible says in Luke chapter number three that Jesus was baptized. And then when he comes up out of the water, a voice from heaven says to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then in chapter four, the Bible says that Jesus being led of the spirit into the wilderness is tempted of Satan for 40 or after being after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And Jesus, he's weak in body and he is now alone. He's isolated and the temptation comes. But yet Jesus withstands the temptation. Satan comes to Jesus and says, hey, you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread and just eat. Satisfy your lust of your flesh. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. Then Satan says, hey, let's go up to a mountain. And at the top of a mountain, Satan says, Jesus, look at all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give this to you if you'll bow down and worship me. And then Jesus says again, thou shalt worship the Lord your God, and him only shalt thou serve. And then he says, all right, Jesus, let's take you to the Temple Mount, the highest point in Jerusalem. He says, throw yourself down. The highest point in Jerusalem would be about a three-story building. He says, throw yourself down, because Psalm says, if you even dash your foot against a stone or you even fall, the angels will bear you up. And then for the third time, Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And the Bible says that Satan leaves for a season. You see, Jesus showed that, hey, you can overcome the temptation. There is victory. And it's interesting that the temptation came right after Jesus was baptized because when you receive the approval of heaven, get ready for the assault of hell. You come in here on a Sunday and you get fired up, you get pumped up, you get the word of God, just expect it on Monday. And I don't know why it's a surprise sometimes where it catches us off guard that Satan's going to attack us. The moment you decide, Father, that you're going to lead your family spiritually, get ready for the attack. The moment you decide that you're not going to be the flirt at the office and you're going to start living and uh, acting like a Christian, get ready for the attack. The moment you decide that, guess what? I don't need to start doing the things of my old nature. I need to start living in the new nature and behaving more like Christ. Get ready for the assault. Because when you have the approval, you will face the assault. So don't let it surprise you. But isn't it also interesting that Satan was willing to give Jesus everything Satan could possibly give him? Because Satan doesn't care what he has to give you to get you. He doesn't care. So he will promise you anything. 
And for any young person here, any student, any college student, anybody here that's younger, understand that Satan will promise you pleasure, but he always pays with pain. He always does. He doesn't come through with his promises. He doesn't come through. So here, David fell, Eve fell, but Jesus stands. And you're thinking, I can't stand. There's just no way. But here's what's awesome. Notice if you would take your Bible again to 1 John chapter 2. Notice verse 14, the verse I left out intentionally. Back up for a second. Here's what it says. I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are, the word is, strong. Before he even launches into don't love the world, don't love its system, its way of behaving, its way of doing things, he calls something out of them. Touch your neighbor this morning and say, you are strong. You are strong. You are strong. You see, oftentimes we don't feel strong. And guess what? When you don't feel strong, you don't live strong. It's true. When I go to the gym, if I'm pumped up, man, I lift heavier. I kid you not. And it's not anything because, oh, I just had my head. No, no. If I feel good when I'm in the gym, I just lift heavier. I run a little bit harder. I just perform a little bit better. And it's totally based on how I feel. But when I go into the gym and I'm not feeling so great, all of a sudden I'll drop the weight. I'll walk away for a little bit. And I'll grab what's called a pre-workout drink. It's basically a bunch of sugar and caffeine. That's what you need. And that all of a sudden will change your mood. And you'll go back to the same weight you couldn't lift and all of a sudden you can lift it. Why? Because the right belief changes your behavior. And if some of you would just believe what God says about you, great things would happen. If you just believe that God says, hey, there is a way out of temptation. The Bible says there has no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But he is faithful in that he will make a way of escape out of that temptation. Let me ask you a question, church. Is it wrong to be tempted? No, it's not. Some of you feel so guilty. Some of you feel so shameful because you have been tempted this week. Temptation in and of itself is not wrong, but the giving in to temptation is what's wrong. The giving in is the problem. But here's how temptation starts. First of all, he says he starts with lust. Lust simply says, I want it. That's where lust starts. I want it. Now, is that wrong in and of itself? No, not at all. But that's not where lust stops. Lust then goes to the next level, and lust then goes into entitlement, and entitlement says, I deserve it. And if there's one thing we could say about culture and society today, it's that we live in an entitlement generation, don't we? Everybody seems entitled to something, and it's amazing how entitled we can be. It's amazing how entitled Christians can be. It's amazing how entitled my family can be. It's amazing how just entitlement runs everywhere, and what does entitlement simply mean? It just means that I feel like I deserve it. I deserve it. But that's not where lust stops, is it? You see, it starts with lust and then moves on to entitlement. But then he says, the pride of life. The pride of life says, I can handle it. And that's the ultimate trick, isn't it? I can handle it. I've hung around people and they say, oh, that guy just can't handle his liquor. I worked at a tech company. It's called Palantir in Palo Alto. And, uh, it's a cool company. It was a blue chips company, and I worked there, but I, w- I didn't have this grand and glorious position at all. Basically, I was the guy watching the cameras. That's, that was my job, all right? And I would do it all night. I would get there at about 10 o'clock, and I would leave at 7 o'clock. But on tech companies, many of you are familiar with local tech companies, alcohol is just kind of in abundance everywhere, right? 
And on Friday nights, our company was right across from Stanford campus. So anybody who had a friend at Stanford, there was just free alcohol everywhere. So what would happen is on a Friday evening, the place would just be packed till about one in the morning, two in the morning. Well, I came back from my lunch break. And after my lunch break, I come back in, it's 2 a.m. And one of the guys is like, hey, pull up camera three. We got one of Facebook's old buildings, and we renovated it, and we moved in there. And I'm on camera three, and he's like, just watch this guy. And this guy, we have free food, free alcohol. And so this guy goes in the freezer. In the freezer, there is this little bag of Swedish meatballs. And what he did, he had taken the Swedish meatballs, but this guy is very inebriated, just very. He somehow managed to get the meatballs into the microwave. He warms them up. As he's stumbling, fumbling around, he's trying to walk out of the little kitchen. We're watching this on camera. You say, you should help the poor man. No, it was much more fun to watch him. And uh, as he's walking out of the kitchen, the man falls down and he stumbles. And his Swedish meatballs fall to the ground too. And this is where the story really gets funny because there's a Swedish meatball. He's laying on the ground. I see the Swedish meatball about six inches from his face. And he's laying there. And I kid you not, on the ground, he starts doing this with his tongue. Uh, uh, and he's trying to lick to get the Swedish meatball. He has a perfectly good arm right here. But does he use said appendage? No. He's there, and he's using his tongue trying to get the meatball. And then finally he realizes, I have an arm. But what does he do with his arm? He flaps it over here, and he's trying to, like, hockey stick this meatball into his mouth. All right? It gets worse. He went down the elevator. Or not the elevator, the stairs. He goes, he, he's going to walk down the stairs. That's where we had to step in. This guy's way too inebriated to walk down steps. And I remember one of the guys saying to me, that guy just can't handle his liquor. Just can't handle it. I think that's where sin gets a lot of us. It tricks us into thinking we can handle it. Oh, I can handle that much debt. Oh, man, I can handle that stressful of a situation with all the family and everything, and I won't blow up. <laughs> and then your husband is like, yes, no, 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 that's, this is bad. We got to pull you out of this situation. Way too much stress there. And we, we think we can handle it. Oh, I could be around those people and not be tempted to do the wrong thing. No. So pride says I can handle it. So what does the writer say? He calls out the strong. He says, wait a minute, you need to know how strong you are. Not of yourself, he goes on to say this. He says in verse four, uh, 14, he says uh, that you are strong. But then he goes on to describe how they are strong and why they are strong. And so this is what the writer says. He says, you are strong. And he says, because the word of God lives in you. You see, our strength is not just because you're strong, you're a great person. It's because the word of God lives. And this word lives, the same word abides. It means this constantly. It's inside of you. It's growing. It's alive. But here's what often happens is that the word of God is not in us. Colossians says this. The Colossians writes, let the word of God dwell richly in you. It means just being full of the word of God. What often happens is the amount of the word of God that we get is really minimal in the average Christian. It's maybe 45 minutes to an hour a week for the average. Well, on the flip side, the average American is watching 37 hours of television a week. So all of a sudden, which system have we bought into? Have we bought into a worldly system or have we bought into a godly system? It's amazing to me that just by that fact alone, we can tell where is our strength. And that's what's a, no wonder people are turning out a certain way. When you spend 37 hours, that's like a full-time job. 
Like literally, a full-time job. Unless you're binge watching, that's totally okay, Christian. Binge watch is acceptable, okay? Just get it over with. I'm like, it's just done. I just, I put it on my schedule. I got through the whole season in one day. I'm done. I'm good. I'm good, all right? So other than that, though, when you stretch it out every week, and next week a show comes out, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous because then I got to wait each week. So it's better just to binge watch it, all right? So just get it out of the way. But what he's saying is that we can get into a system, and that system just takes over our thinking. But we're strong when the word of God dwells in us. So let me ask you a very sensitive question. How much time are you spending with God? You see, I used to do this thing where, okay, I'm going to spend time with God in the evenings because I'm awake and I'm alert. But then I found out if I stay up late, that affects my family because I have a seven-month-old and we got to get to bed early. And, and so that didn't work. All right, then I'll, do, I'll spend my time with God during the day. But guess what? My days get so busy, God gets pushed out. I found that nobody bothers me at five in the morning. My phone doesn't go off. Pastor West doesn't text me, usually. <laughs> Nothing happens at 5 in the morning. None of you have an emergency. None of you want prayer at 5 in the morning. It's amazing. None of you ever call me if I'm like, can we just pray and fellowship? No, I would say no. But, I mean, if you did, I'd be surprised. I probably wouldn't say no. But it's one of those things where it's, it's a time that's just uninterrupted. And it's uninterrupted time where I just get to spend time with God, time that's alone. And it's uninterrupted where I just get to hear from God. And that's where my strength comes from. Imagine if you ate once a week, and then you went to the doctor, and you said, Doctor, I, I just don't feel good. And the doctor is like, okay, tell me where it hurts. It hurts everywhere, Doc. I just, I barely made it in here. Man, I just, I just, my stomach is, is just hurting. It's tied up in knots. I just, I mean, I, I almost passed out driving here. It was bad. Help me. And the doctor's like, well, what medication are you on? I'm not on any medication. Okay, well, tell me about your diet. Well, I ate last Tuesday. Well, there's your problem. You ate a week ago. But some of us spiritually, when's the last time we ate spiritually? You see, what often happens is we, we kind of delegate our spiritual life, don't we? We kind of think, well, I listen to the radio a little bit, and don't get me wrong, the radio is good, and I listen to this podcast, don't get me wrong, that's good, and I read this book, and don't get me wrong, that's good. But when are you on the Word of God? Because he didn't say, hey, make sure you're strong because of your podcast, you're strong because of that, that sermon online, and you're strong because of that, that Charles Stanley book, and you're strong because, of, because you talked with that friend at the life group. He said you're strong because of why, church? The word. The word is what makes us strong. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's God's word. You don't feel strongest because we're just not in the word. That's, that's, there's no other way around it. There just isn't. I can't sugarcoat this. I can't make this any better for you. I can't make it any plainer for you. But here's what often happens. We say we're not going to delegate time or set aside time daily to spend with God. So then we kind of wait for the weekend. And what happens on the weekend is the weekend gets really full. Haven't you noticed that? Haven't you noticed just about every weekend you got about 17 parties to go to? It's like somebody's having a baby, somebody's uh, uh, inviting you to some gathering, or somebody's having a birthday, or somebody's just uh, doing something where they're inviting you over, and all of a sudden you're like, I got a soccer game, I got this, I got to go shopping, and uh, I got so much going on. You're like, I didn't have time for God. I didn't even go to church this weekend. The next weekend, well, we got to go camping. The next weekend, well, we got to go... trim my grass, and the next weekend I gotta, I don't know, I gotta be at home for a little bit. I gotta need me time. And then all of a sudden, we say church is important. We say we love God. We say uh, it's important, but yet the message that we're sending to everybody around us is that we say it's important, but it doesn't reflect on our schedule. But yet the average Christian, uh, average American gets 37 hours of television. 37 hours. And you know what I'm guilty of saying, church? I'm always guilty of saying this. I wish I had more. Kind of bad, isn't it? 
when I can spend 37 hours? Where did I get that time? You see what I mean? We want to be strong, and we're wondering why we're not strong. And John says, hey, you're strong if you spend time with me. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes on. And some of us were saying, what's the struggle? In verse number 15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. He's drawn a conclusion. He's trying to say, you can't be full of the world and full of God. You can't be full of two things. There's an old story, I don't know how true it is, but there was a soldier, and during the Civil War, he didn't want to fight for either side, so he put on a pair of gray pants and a blue jacket, and uh, because he didn't want to represent either side, so he just said, I'll take the middle, so both sides shot him. (laughs) And that's kind of how it is for the Christian life. You see, it's not something where God's like, hey, you can be a part-time Christian, though we kind of have that, and they're usually miserable, usually. I haven't met a Christian who's just super happy when they're not really living for God. It just doesn't happen. And their families feel it. Their friends feel it. Their witness, their light, it's not very bright. And so here he's saying, you can't be filled with one thing and expect to have a lot of God. So what is he saying? Create some separation. Have you noticed that anytime God, before he used somebody, he separated them? What was Moses doing in the wilderness before God called him? He was shepherding a flock, and God separated him from his flock. What was David doing before he called him? He was out in the field. All throughout Scripture, God is separating. Why? So that he could do his greatest work. I love it when I see a new couple, they're expecting their first child, and what they typically do is they'll either... A, upgrade their apartment or house to make room for said child, or they'll go upstairs and they'll, they'll look at the rooms that they have and they'll say, okay, well, um, that's my craft room and that's your man cave, so guess the man cave's out, all right? That's the baby's room, okay? So man cave goes first. I'm just saying right now, man cave goes first, and that's just the way it works, and that's going to be the baby's room, and it's interesting because we create space, why? To fill it. You see, God wants you to create some space in your life, so why? He can fill it. But here's the thing. Write this down about God. Just somewhere on your notes, write this down. God is a filler, not a forcer. The Bible says in Revelation that God stands at the door and knocks. It means God wants in. He doesn't force himself in. He wants to be invited in. But I know what Revelation is talking about. It's talking about the church, and God wants to be invited into the church. Isn't that even more sad that God is saying, hey, I'm not even in that church? Anybody ever attended that church? I used to pastor that church, but that's beside the point. And uh, where you're like, is God there? Is God in there? Is he a part of that? I'm knocking. I'm waiting. So God here. So we want to make sure that God is with it. We want to invite God in. God wants to be a part of it. So God's not going to force himself in your life. He will fill the space. So are you creating room? Are you creating separation? Because too often what I see is our calendars and our lives... It's so filled. It's so full of all this stuff. And we're so busy. And we're so full of things. And God is saying, hey, where do I fit? You've gone three weeks with no church. You've gone three weeks with no life group. You've gone three weeks with no devotions. And you said you prayed. You prayed over your meal. Is that really heart to heart with God? God, I pray that you would take this double cheeseburger with bacon and lettuce and tomatoes and extra grease, and would you please, God, turn it into a salad in my stomach, but may it taste like a cheeseburger. You are a great God. We love you. If you could turn water into wine, do this now. Oh, it's still a cheeseburger. Oh, well, I tried. That's not real communion with God. 
And we wonder why we don't experience God doing great things. Because when you look at the church in Acts, there's a portion of scripture in Acts chapter number five where Peter's walking into the temple. The Bible says that Peter's shadow falls on a lame man and just his shadow touching that man, the man is healed and he gets up. It sounds crazy. It sounds unrealistic, but that's what God does. And when people come to church, one time Paul was preaching, he was preaching a long time and a man fell out of the window. His name was Eutychus and Eutychus falls out the window and uh, Eutychus too if you fell out a window and uh, bad preacher joke, sorry. And um, all week, all week, baby, come on, I've been working on that one. And, uh, and uh, I don't have a real job, y'all. This is what I do, all right? And so in a moment, all of a sudden, there Paul comes and he heals the man and he gets up. That's what was happening in the early church. You were seeing miracles. You were seeing the gospel go around the world. And yet we come to church and we kind of think that, oh, yeah, today we sang a worship song. And, and yeah, that was normal. My greatest fear is that if any of the apostles were to show up in our church, I think they would be amazed at a couple things. How much we do without the power of the Holy Spirit, how much wealth we have, and how materialistic we are. I think they'd walk in and say, wow, you guys did a lot. Where's the power of God? Because the Holy Spirit inside of you And this is not blasphemous. The Holy Spirit inside of you is better than a Jesus beside of you. That's what the Holy Spirit inside. It's more powerful than if Jesus was right there. That's the power of the Holy Spirit that's inside of you. That's how he could say you are strong. In chapter four, we're going to get to it. He's going to say greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Who's in the world? He's saying the enemy, the devil. And God is saying that's inside of you. When you name the name of Jesus, he's saying that's inside of you. That power is there. And he uses an interesting word. It's a Greek word. It's the word dunamis, which means where we get our word dynamite from. This is an explosive power. You see, there's all different types of power nowadays. You can go to a power plant, and that's a constant current of power. And it's just steady, and it's just flowing. But in that, he said, no, it's an explosive power. Where is that explosive power demonstrated in your life? If you're not seeing it, could it be you haven't created any space for God to work? You're wanting God to intervene. You're wanting God to do a miracle. But you've got to create the separation. Worshiping one day a week, nobody thinks that w- that's weird. But once you were to start get passionate, fanatical, radical about the things of God, then everybody would step back and say, something's, something's, oh, something's weird. We've got to create separation. Can we all stand? I'm going to give you the last point as we wrap things up. You say, Why? Why do all this? Why put all the effort? Why resist temptation? Why love God? Why be sold out to him? And in verse number 17, here's what he says. The world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. This is a matter of what's going to last. What is going to last in your life? The thing that you're loving now, is it but for a moment or is it going to last all eternity? You see, none of you booked a cruise on a ship you knew was going to sink. None of you buy stock into a company you know is going to go bankrupt. God is saying, hey, don't put your faith in this world. Don't put your hope and your trust in this. Don't love this. There's something that's going to last so much longer. Love that which will last for all eternity. So what do you love this morning? Is it evidence in your life? Or are we filled with a self-love? God wants to do so much more in you and through you. You see, I thought we're supposed to be passionate about what we love. 
Today, 40,000 people gather in one stadium, one stadium alone, and they all paint their faces, they put on their jerseys, and they worship a little pigskin, and they're bowing to it, they're cheering to it, they're worshiping, they gave money to it, they gave an offering to what they worship, 40,000 screaming, fanatical fans, and nobody thinks it's crazy. Nobody does. Nobody thought it was crazy. They got up early and they brought food and they sat out and they laughed. They high-fired and they cheered each other and they pulled out their phones. They looked at something called fantasy football. It's not even real football. It's fantasy. And yet they're mad about fantasy, a trade that they didn't make or a trade that they did make. What are they loving? Something that's not going to last. What do you love that is eternal, that won't perish, that won't fade away? One of Paul's last writings, he writes to his son in the faith. He writes to Timothy. And it's a sad letter. He says to my son, Timothy, my own dear son in the faith, he says, everybody has left me. I'm alone. And he says, Demas left me because he loved this world. My prayer is that we would not be a Demas. We would not be a Demas that we wouldn't fall in love with something we know we shouldn't love. It's all right to say, hey, I enjoy my job, I enjoy my car, I enjoy my spouse, my family, but is it taking first place? Or is it all about God? John is writing to get us to wake up that God wants us to be passionate. It's not about just living right. It's about loving right. What do you love this morning that matters? Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to do things a little bit differently this morning. I feel the Holy Spirit in this place. I've been praying for hours this morning that God would work in hearts. And you are here. It's no accident you are here. It's no accident that the first time guests are here. It's no accident that you made it. Uh, You fought so much to get here. It was such a, a hard time getting to church. It's no accident that God brought you to Southridge Church, 5585 Cottle Road. God has a will. He has a plan for you. He wants to use you. He wants to speak to you. You are here, but God wants to ask you a question. He wants to ask you, what do you love most? And if you fill in that blank with anything other than Jesus, he wants to be invited in. He wants to have that spot. He wants to sit on the throne of your heart. We sang, he is stronger. And yes, he is stronger if we will let him be stronger. So I'm going to pray for our entire church. I may not know you by name, but I'm going to pray for you. I may not know your situation, but I'm going to pray that God will work in your situation. I may not know the type of week that you've had, but I'm going to pray that God will do something miraculous in your week. I'm going to pray that our church would be a church where we expect God to do the impossible, where we see God do the radical. Church, God is doing so many miracles. I'm going to share them with you in just a moment. There are things that are so big that are happening among our church, it would just blow your socks off. But let's pray. And let's ask God to work. If you're going to kneel in your seat, kneel in your seat. If you're going to make an altar in your heart, make an altar in your heart. If you're going to lift your hands toward heaven, or if you're going to hold your hands out in in a receptive posture that you, yes, are surrendered to God, then have that posture. Have a posture in your heart and in your mind that says, God, I'm surrendering all that I am to all that you are so that I can be so much more than what I presently am. And may our heart reflect it. Dear Heavenly Father, 
Forgive me for loving this world so much. Forgive me for being so easily drawn away from what I know you've called me to. Forgive me for those sins that just, they grab my attention and my affection and they pull me off of what you've called me to. Forgive me for not loving you more. God, may I have a love that is passionate, that is pure, that is right. May I love those things where your word says, where moth and rust does not corrupt, where thieves cannot break in and steal. May I I have a love that is pure and passionate. May our church be a church that we value what you value. May we love what you love. May we serve who you want to serve. May we do what you want to do. And God, we're asking you to do in us a work. Would we today fall more in love with you? Would it be a love that starts all over? There was a time when we were passionately and radically in love with you, where we couldn't wait to read about you and to talk about you and to sing about you. But today, things have gone cold in our relationship. And so today, we want to once again wake up to who you are. May you reveal yourself to us. May you do great things in us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name.